like you to open your Bibles with me. We have three passages of Scripture this morning. And while when you read the, the words of them, they may not seem as connected, when you read the titles, it will become obvious as to why these three passages are written. We'll first read from 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 through 22, verse 2. And we have an account here of David fleeing from Saul. We'll read the particulars of the account. But he ends up in the cave of Abdullam. And there are at least two, actually there are likely three, but we will ignore the third psalm for this morning, except in passing. Psalms 142 and Psalm 34 were written in the context of what we're going to read in 1 Samuel 21. So let's pick up the reading. David has just, um, about 10 years have passed since David has killed Goliath. He has been in the temple of Saul for these years. And children, you will remember the fact that Saul becomes angry with David, becomes jealous and wants to kill him, even throws his spear at him. This has gone on now for some time, and David has a conversation. Jonathan investigates. It's clear that Saul intends to kill David, and so David flees from Saul. And the first place he went was actually to the tabernacle. When he came to the tabernacle, he had no food, and he asked the priest for the showbread. He wasn't supposed to eat the showbread, but the priest gave him the showbread, and he ate the showbread. And he asked for the sword of Goliath. So here David, when we pick up our reading, David has just left the tabernacle. In his hand is the sword of Goliath. What does he do? 1 Samuel 21 verse 10. Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Now David took these words to heart, and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva fall down on his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Look, you see the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Abdullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house had heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented, gathered to him. And so he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. Then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and thus far we will read. So there is David in the cave of Abdullam in these circumstances. And he writes, as I say, at least two psalms, possibly three, but we will read 
Psalm 142. We actually just sang that psalm together. As you may have noticed, as we sang it, it is a psalm of complaints. It is a song in which David seeks relief from his persecutors. Psalm 142. A contemplation of David, a prayer when he was in the cave. I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord, I make my supplication. I pour my complaint before him. I declare before him any, my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path in the way in which I walk. They have secretly set a snare for me. Look at my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, but you shall deal bountifully with me. He also wrote Psalm 34, to which we will turn for our final scripture reading this morning. And from there will come the text. I will only read the first half of the psalm in the interest of time, but we will, in the sermon, cover the entire psalm. A psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me. And he delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all, those around, all around those who fear him, and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. And he goes on in the second half of the psalm. Spurgeon says the first half is a hymn of praise, and the second is a sermon to the saints, which in the second half of the psalm he urges those who would read this to follow in the ways of the Lord and to be obedient. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I want to consider our text, Psalm 34, verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good, under the theme experiencing God's goodness. First, we'll see that this experience comes in a confused setting. Secondly, it requires us to look beyond the immediate circumstances. And thirdly, it comes with blessings that can be sensed or experienced. 
As we read this, perhaps the title, Experiencing God's Goodness, is not exactly what you would put on top of 1 Samuel 21, verse 10. We're talking about the life of David and children. You know the story of David. We are introduced to David as a young man, a shepherd boy, the youngest in the family of Jesse. And when we're introduced to him, he's anointed to be the king of Israel. But his road to becoming the king was a long road. We don't know how much time had passed between his anointing and and the battle with Goliath. Definitely a few years. Roughly 10 years have passed between Goliath and this point, and it's going to be another 17 years before David is going to become king. Almost 30 years probably between his anointing. And David, on the one hand, is the sweet shepherd of psalmist of Israel, a shepherd who takes care of his father's sheep. We are introduced to him in the Bible as a man after God's own heart who walks closely with the Lord. And we have insight through the Psalms into some of his deepest feelings and the closeness of his walk to the Lord. And yet we will see in David's life many examples in which he falls very deeply. He counts the people against God's will. He falls into sin with Bathsheba. He kills a man. Absalom, his son, and his management of his household and his parenting leaves a lot to be desired. No, David is not portrayed to us in the Scripture as a man who always had it perfectly together. The Scriptures are very honest with us about the ups and downs in the life of David. And indeed, as we're introduced to David here, on the one hand, we have David in the context of God's providence, having been obedient and been in the palace of Saul, learning the being taught inevitably in terms of God's providence for his kingship, in terms of how to manage the palace. And yet we see, even in our passage, David sinning. And he ends up in a cave. These psalms were written in a cave. Psalm 142 and 34 and possibly also Psalm 57. I didn't read it. It would become too complicated to bring all of these psalms in. But that psalm tells us also that it was written when he fled from Saul into the cave. And it is a prayer of safety for the enemies. Commentators are divided whether it was on this or a different occasion that Psalm 57 was written. I'll leave it aside for this morning. There's more than enough in the Psalms that we have. As you probably observed as we read these two Psalms, they are very different Psalms. Psalm 142 is a Psalm of complaint. David is very honest in Psalm 142 about his circumstance. Verse 1, I will cry out. I'll pour out my complaint. I'll declare my trouble. 
Here's David. Having had to flee from Saul and Israel, having had to flee from Achish and Gath, and he's in the wilderness in a cave. And who comes to him in the cave? Those who were distressed, those who were in debt, those who were in trouble. Yes, David now is the captain of 400 people, all of whom have all kinds of troubles. He says, my spirit's overwhelmed. My enemies have set a snare for me. Verse 4 of Psalm 142, I'm alone. No one cares for my soul. David is in Abdullam. As he looks honestly at a situation, he can only describe it as it truly is. Not a very satisfying one. But then in verse 5 of the psalm, we see a shift, and he turns to God, and he says, but you are stronger than they are. You can bring my soul out of prison. And he ends with hope. You will deal bountifully with me. We don't know exactly when David wrote these psalms. Was it the day after he got to Abdullam? It would appear from the text, which is why I read that next verse, then he went to Moab. He did not stay in the cave of Abdullam that long, it would seem, but we don't have, we're not told the precise amount of times. But certainly, I would expect it was a matter of days and weeks, if not even a few months. And David is at a time of reflection. We don't know the order in which he wrote these psalms. If we go through the natural order of human emotions in terms of how we tend to deal with difficulty, it would seem that Psalm 142 might have come first. David looks around and sees a psalm of complaints about his circumstances and then is reminded that his hope only can be in God. By the time he writes Psalm 34, he seems to be in somewhat of a different state of mind, doesn't he? There's no details of his circumstances in Psalm 34. If it was not for the title, we would call this a psalm of praise, and we would never guess that it was written in circumstances like David found himself in the cave of Abdullam. Why is David in the cave of Abdullam? Well, part of it is the providence of God. David had, on the one hand, been an obedient man. He had come when Israel was being persecuted by Goliath and the Philistines. He had volunteered for service for his country, and the Lord had blessed him. He had faithfully served in the palace of Saul. On the one hand, he is here in the process of his life of having been faithful in God's providence, having brought him to the point where he cannot stay. These are reasons beyond his control. It's Saul who's the jealous one. It's Saul who's being unreasonable, trying to kill David. 
The fact that David has to flee isn't his fault. But yet, we also have to acknowledge, don't we, as we read the passage, that David is here also in part because of his own sin. In these circumstances, David engaged in a sinful self-reliance. After his discussion with Jonathan to discern what Saul's true intentions were, he went to the tabernacle, and what did he do? Did he go to pray? We don't read that. Did he go to offer sacrifices? We don't read that. He was hungry. And he thought his circumstances were so special that God's rules regarding the showbread in the temple, in the tabernacle, didn't apply to him. And he tells the priest to break the rules and give him the showbread because he's hungry. He ate what was forbidden. And then his foolish self-reliance leads to total foolishness. He doesn't have a sword, so what does he do? He asks for the sword of Goliath. And then where does he go? To Gath. To the place of the Philistines. It's obvious the fact that the men of the Philistines knew the songs that Israel were singing about David, that the defeat of Goliath was still raw for them. Why in the world would David go to Gath, and why in the world would he take Goliath's sword with him? What good could that achieve? And this foolishness leads to total humiliation. And the only answer David can think of, lest he be killed by the Philistines, is to pretend that he's an insane man and he lets his beard grow and he lets his drool go on his beard and he claws at the door of the palace like a man who has gone crazy. And finally, Abimelech says, get him out of here. We don't need him here. And he's sent away. David ends up in the, t- in the cave of Abdullam. And people hear about it. And who comes? Those who are in debt. Those who are in difficulty. Those who are discontented. Might I say it respectfully, these are the riffraff of society, those who don't fit in. Those who are on the margins and who come with needs, not with things to contribute. What we have here in the cave of Abdullah is David coming to a time of reflection and prayer. If indeed he wrote Psalm 57 at this time, it's a psalm that asks for safety. Psalm 142, a complaint regarding his circumstances, speaking of his own loneliness and how he can only turn to God. And then there's Psalm 34. A psalm that speaks of deliverance and of the goodness of God.
Now, Psalm 34 is an acrostic. Children, you know what an acrostic is, don't you? If you want to write a poem, and you, what you do is you start perhaps with the letters of the alphabet on the one side, or maybe a word, and then every line begins with that specific word. Well, in Hebrew, if we were to read Psalm 34 in Hebrew, we would notice that the first letter of each one of the 22 verses begins with one of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. There are some who have tried to translate that psalm into English using it. They are very awkward translations. doesn't work very well to translate that. But it's important to know that Psalm 34 is an acrostic. It's a piece of poetry. Why is that so important? Well, it's one thing to write a psalm. It's one thing to sit down like David does and put your thoughts on paper. But to write poetry in an acrostic form requires you not only to think about your own thoughts and what comes next, but also to find the white right words in order to put it into the form that meets the requirements of the poetry. It's a lot of work. And David doesn't have a pen and paper like we do. Probably he's writing with a pen that sort of is, is a, a, an iron sketch thing on the back of, of perhaps um, animal skins. There is some paper in that, of very, but it's, it's very difficult compared to our own process. We don't know exactly what it is, so let's, let's not overly speculate. Let's just remind ourselves that it's not like you and I grabbing a piece of paper and a pen and having ink free-throwing. This is a lot of work to write Psalm 34. Why do I draw this all to your attention? Well, I take great comfort from David in the psalm, in the, in the cave of Abdullam, because I don't know about you, but I've been there sometimes. God's people don't always have it together. There are times when the difficulties of providence, when our own sin and our own rank foolishness brings us to places where we can only sit and reflect and say, what in the world am I doing here? Have you ever had that? I find it comforting that the Scriptures are very honest about the journeys of God's saints. Last year, we traveled together through the life of Abraham. How often did we find ourselves with Abraham in difficulty, and so often it was difficulty of his own making. Confusion can be real for the children of God. Sometimes we think we have to have it all together, don't we? We come to church, we dress up nicely. How are things going? Oh, good. And yet sometimes our lives are such confused messes. Sometimes in situations that can be known to others, and sometimes we struggle with these things in our own souls. 
questions. Why, what did I do wrong here? How did I end up? The full range of emotions. Sometimes with tears of lament even between the songs of thanksgiving. As we turn the calendar to 2022, we can confess with David at a time of reflection that we don't always have it all figured out. Oh, David spends some time, and we read in 1 Samuel 22, verse 3, after a bit of time, he moves on. David went from Mizpah to Moab and said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. This period of reflection in the time of David is followed by an intentional listening to God for his direction. And implicit in that request is the fact that right now he's in circumstances because he wasn't listening to God. He was relying on himself. And here he is and God brings him to the cave. Yes, there's a time of uncertainty and confusion. But in this there is great instruction for, as we see in our second point, David looks beyond the circumstances. And with all of this background as context, including the rest of these psalms, let's narrow in very specifically on Psalm 34, verse 8, where he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. No, this isn't the only thing David is thinking. In these two psalms, we have a range of emotions and a range of thought. But this is perhaps the pivotal thought. The central thought. Even in the cave of Abdullam, not knowing what would come next, David can say this, I know that God is good. Good. Good is a relatively straightforward term. Even our children know what what is good? You hear it many times, right? Perhaps, perhaps your mom says, after you did a chore, that was good. You did a good job. What does that mean? Well, it means there's a degree of excellence. There's a degree of performance. It doesn't mean it's always perfect, but it's good. Often we use the term in comparative form. We watch a hockey game and we say, boy, that player is really good tonight. What do we mean? Well, actually what we probably mean is he's better than the other players on the ice. Now you can say that if you watch the Toronto Maple Leafs play. You can also say it if you go out to your back pond and watch your cousins play. Some of you maybe over the holidays have... Backyard rinks, and you're playing. Maybe you ask your parents if certain cousins or certain friends can come over and you want somebody on your team. Why? Because he's really good. When we use good, we use it in comparison with others. Now, your friend may be really good, but if we put him on an NHL team and had him play against professional players, he wouldn't quite look so good, would he? Good is a relative, a comparative term. 
But that's not how David is using it here. David is referring to God, and he directs us, he directs himself, and he writes it down with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for us to learn with him that God is good not because he's better than others. God is good because he defines goodness. 1 John 1, 5, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. The English word for God actually comes from goodness, if we go back to its Saxon roots. Goodness is not just a characteristic of God. It is of his essence. Psalm 119, 68, you are good and you do good. Jesus said to the rich young man in Mark 10, Why do you call me good? There is none good but God. Our text in Hebrew actually is four words. There's a word for God, which here in this context is Yahweh, Jehovah, the covenant God. There's the word for good. There's the word for taste. And there's the word for see. Now, I don't want to pretend that David has written a chapter in a book on the attributes of God and is conscious of all aspects of God's goodness as he writes this text. That is unlikely. But the Holy Spirit is working in his heart and inspiring him to write this psalm which continues to us as a gift to the church of all ages. And he is in giving him great insight and comfort in reminding him that God who made the world was good. Why is this such a great comfort to David in this circumstances? Well, In a world when David looked around outside the cave, perhaps he saw the 400 men who were now his responsibility. He had to find enough food for them every day to make sure they were safe. All of a sudden, he's got a ton of responsibility. And he still doesn't have a clear answer from God. As he sits at the cave and he muses and he looks, he's reminded that God is good and that the world exists because God is good. The goodness that exists in the world exists because of God. But it's also true in reverse. If there was no God, there would be no goodness in the world. As David looks at his circumstances, he would say, if, if there is no God, if I cannot taste and see that God is good, then this is all that there is. I'm going to end up relying on my own sin, my own foolishness, and I'm going to end up in miserable circumstances. But David knows from his own life that this isn't all there is. He has faced better days. He remembers there are better days. One commentator says the goodness of God is not merely a sentiment, not merely a feeling, not merely a wish. It finds expression in acts which tend to promote the happiness of his creatures everywhere. There are good things in the world because of God. Why did God make the world? Well, he had good in mind. Don't we have that over and over in Genesis 1? 
God made this. Behold, it was very good. Fish, animals, trees, plants, all the goodness of creation. It's good because God made it good. And so God's intention for all people living in the earth, believers, non-believers, everyone who God put on the earth, is that they may experience the goodness of the world. Psalmist in 130, Psalm 139 reflects on who he is himself and his created being. He says, I will praise you, Lord, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows right well. You made me good. <coughs> Excuse me. And in God's response to the fall, what happened? God did not leave us with the fall of Adam and Eve. God did not leave the world in the misery in which it fell after the sin of our first parents. No, God sent a way of salvation because he desires good. Arthur Pink, writing on the goodness of God, says, quote, Notwithstanding all the evils which attend our fallen state, the balance of good greatly preponderates. It means there's much more good. With comparatively rare exceptions, men and women experience far greater days of health than they do of sickness and pain. There's more creature happiness than creature misery in the world. Even our sorrows admit of considerable alleviation. God has given to the human mind a pliability which adapts itself to the circumstances and most of us make the most of them. Yes, the goodness, the joy, the satisfaction that you and I and even our unbelieving neighbors enjoy in everyday life is part of the goodness of God. Even apart from salvation, goodness is experienced. He provides for his creatures. He restrains the full expression of evil through his restraining grace, and he allows us to enjoy the bounty of his creation. There are moments of goodness and joy that all of God's creatures are able to experience. In the midst of his difficulty, in the midst of his confusion, as David reflects on all of it and sits in the cave of Abdullam, he takes up his writing instrument, and he may not have experienced tons of goodness at that moment. But essentially he is saying there is good in the world because God is in the world. And God is real, and that goodness is expressed. Indeed, we can taste and see it. Is he describing what he has just experienced? What he has experienced a long time ago? Or is he expressing his wish for what will come next? We don't know for sure. But what we do know is he makes it very personal, which we see in our third point will taste and see it. The goodness of the Lord reflects a soul who knows he's been made right with the Lord. And as we read the chapter, did you catch David's confidence? Verse, two, I, verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. I will boast in him. Verse 3, I sought the Lord and he heard me. 
Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. You see, David is able to make the distinction because between the circumstances he finds himself in and God's goodness. Psalm 142, we've heard him pray, bring my soul out of prison. That's the closest we come in these three psalms to a direct prayer of repentance. But David has the confidence he's right with God. And he can plead to God as a righteous man. He knows that God is good. Does that mean that David says sin doesn't matter and he doesn't have to worry about his own sins and shortcomings? No. But David knows what it is to repent before the Lord and to experience his forgiveness. He recognizes that the righteousness does not come from him. Indeed, the glory of God comes from his goodness. And so he writes in one Psalm 145, 7, They will utter the memory of your great goodness. They will sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. Oh, you see, David here is stopping himself and reminding himself that God is good. And if God is good, that is the goodness of the God who has forgiven his sins in the past. And he can be right with God. His circumstances are not, first of all, defined by what we see outside of the cave of Abdullam. His circumstances are not, first of all, narrowly defined by his own hurts and pains. No, he takes a much broader view and he sees the fact that God made the world and God put him in it and God is good. God has been good to him. God has forgiven his sins in the past. And yes, even in this, oh, may I taste and see again that the Lord is good. Oh, we don't know how much David understood or could articulate the manner of salvation and that this would require God to take upon himself human flesh and become the sacrifice of sin. But David did know that sin required a sacrifice. David did know that he could not pay for his sins himself. He knew it was not the blood of the sheep that he put on the altar that forgave sin, but that this pointed one day to the Messiah whom had been promised from him as his own seed. And so he says in verse 6, this poor man cried. The Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. Wait, did we hear that right? The Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. David, you're sitting in a cave. You can't go to Israel. You can't go to Gath. You're a vagabond, a wanderer in the wilderness. You have to fend for yourself like a wild man. That's all the world can say to him. But David's not relying on what the world can say to him. The Lord is good. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. David, can you share with us how you can write such poems? Perhaps David would answer us. Well, let's start with the title. Be honest with your own circumstance. Describe where you are. And then it's a poem. 
It's an acrostic, so we start with the beginning. First Hebrew letter, Aleph. It's not that hard to get started, David would tell us. We start with a basic truth that every believer believes. Verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. We start where we always need to start, with the praise of God. The next letter in the Hebrew alphabet is bet. Verse 2, my soul shall boast. The humble will hear it and be glad. Those 400 men who've come to me for help, those down and outers who are with me in the cave, they're going to hear me praise God. This is going to be a cave of joy, not a cave of mourning. Gimel, third letter. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name forever. And so we have David with his pen writing each letter going through all 22 letters of the alphabet. Verses three through 4 through 7, speaking of the special deliverance the Lord has provided. Verses 9 and 10, speaking with confidence how the Lord will provide for him. There's no, no want to them who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord will not, fear the Lord will not seek any good thing. Oh, that doesn't mean David has a wild-eyed optimism. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers out of all of them. But the pivot of the passage seems to be our text, verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. God is good. And you don't just know that with your head. You taste it and you see it. The words taste and see in our text are imperatives. They're commands. It doesn't say, I have tasted and seen. It says, no, go taste. Go see. There's an order to it. Taste brings us to food. Food is something we all need. Food is nutrition. And it speaks to the necessity of God's goodness. It's like food that enables us to deal with the challenges of life every day. Tasting is acquired through knowledge, through our palate, our characteristics of food that are hard to describe. Nonetheless, it's real and we know it. I had a couple of delicious meals this week. Don't worry, I won't. But I could spend some time here trying to describe to you how good those meals were. And some of you, having had similar meals, may be able to say, oh yes, I've had gravy on my turkey like that before. Or yes, I too love those mashed potatoes when they have that special texture to them. And we could spend a lot of time trying to describe it. We really can't do it through words, can we? The only way you will really know what the food tastes like is if you taste it yourself. David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And you have to do it personally. Oh, I travel a lot for work. I eat a lot of work, meals all by myself in restaurants. It's lousy. 
Food is always best eaten in a group. But does that mean we can taste each other's food? No. The goodness of God similarly is best enjoyed in the congregation of his people where we together praise him. And yet it must be tasted and seen individually. As you enter the new year, can I ask you, have you tasted and seen that God is good? I didn't ask you about your circumstances as you enter 2022. I didn't ask you if you're in the cave of Abdullah or if you're on top of Mount Zion, regardless of where you are. Have you tasted and seen the goodness of God? Oh, I want to remind you, we've focused on one verse. There's a, a range of emotions in these texts. And yet, out of the goodness of God proceeds all of these other blessings. And so it's appropriate as we enter into a new year that we be, start at the very beginning with the goodness of God. Now, someone says, wait a minute. I know what you say is true, but... This is inspired text. This is David. This just seems a little unreal for someone in such difficult situations and you don't know my circumstance. No, I don't. But can I tell you that, speak to any pastor, an elder who has gone to children of God who are facing difficult circumstances and how often it is that you leave that home visit saying they ministered to me rather than I ministered to them. Why? Because in spite of difficult circumstances in their lives, they were able to say the Lord is good. Turn the pages of church history. David's not an isolated example. But maybe let me close with an illustration of one man whose name you may not be familiar with, but I suspect you know. Martin Rinkhart. Martin Rinkhart was a Lutheran pastor during the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century. He was a pastor in a German town called Ellenburg. The Thirty Years' War was on, and many refugees came to the town, and the town was overflowing. And I chose this example because In 1636 and 1637 in Germany, there was a great plague. In the year 1637, Martin Rinkhart conducted 4,480 funerals in his city. All the other pastors in Eilenburg had died because of the plague, and he was alone. I said you probably don't know his name, but you probably know him. Why do you know him? Because you and I have often sang a hymn that Martin Eilenberg, that Martin Rinkhart wrote in this context. The hymn, Now thank we all our God with heart and hand and voices who wondrous things has done in whom this world rejoices who from our mother's arms has blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love and still 
is ours today. Oh, may this bounteous God through all our life be near us with ever joyful hearts and blessed peace to cheer us and keep us in his grace and guide us when perplexed and free us from all ills in this world and the next. God is good. His goodness is of his essence and character, and that's why the world continues. This afternoon, we will continue examining the promise Paul writes to God's people in Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But this morning, let's leave the house of God celebrating his goodness. Whether in the cave of Abdullam, on Mount Zion, or somewhere in between, know this, people of God. God is good. And he comes to you and says, I have been good in the past. I, it's of my essence. Believe in me. If you're a stranger to grace this morning, if you're entering the new year not knowing anything of the goodness of God, I plead with you, go to him. He offers his goodness to all who will come. And he offers to be with you through all of life's journey. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, the text taste and see that the Lord is good comes from a very surprising time in the life of David, not a time in which we will naturally expect him to be overflowing with a sense of your goodness. But Lord, comes at a time in which he needed to be reminded of it, and by your Holy Spirit you did, and enabled him to write it down and to remind us that whatever we face, there is nothing that we will face in 2022 that is greater than your goodness. And so we pray, Lord, that we may rest in you, that we may walk in you, that we may trust in you. Lord, forgive that which was sinful also this morning. Be with us as we go from this place. Give us a blessed Lord's Day. We ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen.